As time hurtles on, the predictions mushroom. Who is 666? Is the new Euro Unity the precursor of the revived Roman Empire? Will Jesus return before, halfway through, or at the end of the tribulation? As we hunger for answers, it is easy to miss the obvious. The spirit of the Antichrist is definitely already here. Every day, millions exclude Christ from their daily routine. What can we do to counter the spirit of atheism, the spirit to live for power and prestige? Let's join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wordson, and learn together how to counter the spirit of Antichrist. You can be enamored with prophecy. I remember as a little kid、uh, sitting in meetings, and my dad would announce that Dr. Charles Woodbridge was going to go through the entire book of Revelation in one session. And I used to say, Wow, how could anybody ever do that? And he would get up and just synthetically bring together the whole book of Revelation. And we'd all sit there just awestruck, you know, man, all these prophetic things. You know, I think it's really possible that we can get all involved in questions like what's the meaning of 666 and who is the Antichrist and what's happening, that we can lose the thrust of what Daniel was really trying to get across. The heartbeat of the book of Daniel is that there is a living sovereign God, the Yahweh of Israel, the God that came down on Mount Sinai and he really did give the laws to Moses. And Daniel was a young man that really believed that. And Daniel, from the beginning of his ministry, talked about a stone cut out without hands and a, a great son of man that would eventually bring resurrected life into the kingdom of this world. Daniel's heartbeat was not just focused on the details of prophecy, it was focused on a living relationship with a God that was there that radically changed his life day in and day out. A man that would be willing even to give his life. If it meant going to the lion's den,、uh, if, if he had to give up his quiet time, his time alone with God, he would go into the lion's den because his relationship, his time with God was so real. And one of the things that really gripped my heart, this tremendous competition going on between the spirit of Christ that's in the world, but there's also another spirit, the spirit of Antichrist. There's a tremendous conflict going on in the world right now. The spirit of Antichrist in this world is alive and well. You see, Antichrist isn't just a prophetic figure who's going to be out there somewhere. He's not just somebody that might be growing up in Europe somewhere or, or might be even here in the United States somewhere and we can try to figure out who he is and, 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 and all the speculations, you know, was it Kennedy or, or was it somebody else? And down back in World War II, they said it was Hitler and, and on and on it goes and the skeptic says, see, you guys don't even know who it is. What we need to realize is that the scripture says that we should not be so enamored with trying to figure out specifically who the individual is, but we need to think about the characteristics that are part of the attitude of Antichrist. And what I want you to realize is that as you go out into school in just a few weeks, as you go out into your job in just a few weeks, tomorrow as you're intermingling with friends, as you watch TV, I want you to realize that you're going to be exposed to the spirit of Antichrist. One of the ways you can see it, like a lot of you have been enamored by the Mars probe and, and this little machine that's trucking around Mars and bringing, giving us rock samples and sending back all kinds of information. As you listen to those reports, I, one of the things I want you to realize is that it's just assumed, 
It's just assumed that Mars is there by accident, by probabilities. It's just assumed that as we study the book, uh, as we study Mars, it's kind of like studying a book. Maybe we can find about our heritage. And in fact, I remember one of the newscasts I heard, they, they talked about Martian rocks, and they made great speculations how they've, how they've determined that now there could be maybe a small bacteria that was trapped in a, in a meteor. And this small bacteria that was trapped in a meteor was blasted out into space and it eventually came here to planet Earth and, and by hook or by crook somehow that little, little spark of light began to flame into more complex forms of life. And that's the origin of life on the planet. In fact, I heard very serious commentary saying that in looking at Mars, we can find our origin. We can find where we began. What I want you to realize is that as you hear a report like that, you know, you listen to it, it sounds like everything is so objective, and yet, and yet, you're not asking yourself, what are they telling us about what they believe about the beginning of life on this planet? What are the facts that justify that kind of a belief system? In other words, as you listen to that newscast, the newscaster is automatically assuming that life began not with a personal infinite God, but life began just with material stuff, just power and energy mingling together. And, and by hook or by crook, somehow you're here. And, all, and that just kind of becomes the avant-garde, the intellectual way to look at life. And I want you to see that right there, you might not even been aware of it, but you were confronted with the spirit of Antichrist. Because Jesus Christ didn't believe that we're here just by chance. Jesus Christ in Matthew 19 made it very clear that he believed that the first married couple on planet Earth, the first man on planet Earth, the first woman on planet Earth was not some in-between being between an ape and some kind of a Neanderthal or some kind of a caveman. Jesus clearly said that he believed that in the beginning God created male and female. In the beginning God created Adam and Eve. And that's the belief system of Jesus Christ. What I want to try to get you to begin to think about today is what you're being exposed to in your culture. And I want you to be alert to that so that you're not just taken in by that. In A Few Good Men, the whole crux of the story that there's this horrible, diabolical conspiracy going on in the Marine Corps down in the, in the big base we have in Cuba. And a person has even been murdered and, the, and it's all being covered up all in the name of, of military allegiance. One of the characters in A Few Good Men is a Bible-thumping Southern, probably a Southern Baptist, the way he's presented. And in the court, you know, he waxes eloquent about his allegiance to his commander. He, he's, he's eloquent about his commitment to God, and he even justifies his commitment to God and his commitment to his commanding officer that led to the murder of this innocent man. And a few good men presents a Bible thumper like you that believes this is the word of God being the enemy, the conspirator, who all in the name of religion is covering up vicious crime. But what a few good men never asked and never presented any kind of an answer for is what makes murder evil? What makes it such a horrible thing for someone to lie? What makes it such a horrible thing for things to be covered up? You see, it was the very book that a few good men was maligning and presenting in a very negative way. And, and it, they never came out and said, the Bible's evil, those that go to church are evil. If you want to be naive and get involved in all kinds of conspiracies and be a Bible thumper, they never told you that. 
They just told you a very skillful story presenting a very beautiful actress, Demi Moore, that is very skillful in the way that she's able to communicate ideas. Tom Cruise is a handsome guy. And there are the good people that stand against those Bible thumpers. There are the good people that, that stand for what's right. But did you ever ask the question, how do you know what's right? Don't you realize that this book, if you read it for yourself, this is the book that says, Thou shalt not murder. This is the book in the book of Deuteronomy that said that kings and generals need to submit to the rule of God, that they're not autonomous in themselves, that they can't just make up the rules. It's this book that laid the groundwork for the whole moral conflict that was presented in A Few Good Men. But the way it was presented to you was the Bible's evil. The Christian moral majority and the Christian right, they're like Ayatollah Khomeini. How many of you have ever heard that kind of a, of, a, of a relationship? Is it rationally consistent to unite those two things? And yet the spirit of Antichrist puts things juxtaposed. It, it unites things that really don't go together. Fundamentalism in the United States versus fundamentalism around the world, and it all unites it together. And I want you to realize that in a million different ways that you're being exposed to the spirit of Antichrist. Some of our young people are going to go away to university, and they're going to be exposed like in a science classroom. Like, let's suppose you're studying paleontology. So I'll give you what one of the leading paleontologists says about the origin of life. And we see once again, as we think about the spirit of Antichrist, where we're exposed to it. Look what Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard says. This is a quote from his writings. He says this, We are here because an odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available. So thank your lucky stars in a literal sense. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook or by crook. May, we may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. That's the leading paleontologist teaches at Harvard University. That's the spirit of Antichrist. What is Stephen saying at Harvard? What does he teach young 18-year-old students? That you're just here by chance. That you're just a, a complex series of DNA reactions, and, and we don't understand exactly how it happened, but just thank your lucky stars. Life is just chance. It's just probabilities that you're here. But Stephen never asked further, where does that kind of a belief system lead? You know, what's the ramifications about the way that we live our life day by day? As you open your Bibles back to Daniel chapter 11, I want you to see the spirit of Antichrist, which is when we're going to begin with the idea that there is no God, atheism. Today I want to talk to you about atheism. A means no, theism means theos means God, atheism means there is no God. When we talk about Christ, another way we can look at this thing is I want to make it even stronger, we can look at ah Christos, no Christ, no Christ, without Christ. One of the dominant things in the world right now is a developing spirit of no Christ, no God, no Christ. Now, Daniel chapter 11 exposes that the ultimate Antichrist, this is going to be the heartbeat of what he believes. Look what it says in Daniel 11, verse 36. This king will do as he pleases. In other words, he'll just follow his own heart. No one will be able to oppose him. He will do as he pleases. We've studied about him. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will say unheard of things against the god of gods. 
I want you to know that this ultimate Antichrist is going to be someone that blasphemes the living God. What Stephen Jay Gould said about the origin of human existence blasphemes what Jesus Christ believes about creation. It blasphemes what Genesis chapter 1 through 11 says about the origin of our planet. And you need to decide where you're going to stand in that great, great conflict. Antichrist is going is to blaspheme and talk against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. Daniel's teaching us that all this is being acted out according to his dramatic redemptive plan, that God is in control. He goes on in the next verse to say this, He will show no regard for the God of his fathers. In other words, as this and the spirit of Antichrist develops and this ultimate Antichrist is going to show no regard for traditional religions. See, right now there's a tremendous, tremendous influx of all different kinds of religions and all different kinds of traditions. I want you to know that the ultimate Antichrist and the spirit of Antichrist is an individual that even moves past the idea of all this pluralism. They say in their heart, there really isn't any God. The spirit of Antichrist is someone that really believes that when you die, at the moment that you die, you just become a pile of dirt, and that's all there is, because that's the only reality there is. The only reality is dust and dirt. The Antichrist that it's talking about here is going to show no regard for all the, the ways that God has been seeking to reach man. And Daniel gives us some insight. Even though the other religions of the world have great errors in them. They don't communicate the truth. They're not totally erroneous in the fact that there is some things that human beings, as they think about life, as they think about reality, there are some things that the Spirit of God reveals to them about what's true. As you look at nature, you can learn some things from nature about what's really true. But I want you to realize that there's a breed of people on planet Earth that say the naive thing is to believe that there's something transcendent, that there's something greater than us. The only thing there is is just material and energy, and that's all there is. So that when you die, you just cease to exist, and you everything just joins back to stuff and material things. That's what Antichrist is going to believe. He's going to repudiate the traditional gods of his father. He's going to show no regard for the, for the one desired by woman. He's going to have an anti-Messiah belief system. That the idea of the one desired from woman, and we say that through the book of Daniel, I taught you how that is the belief that the Messiah is coming. From the beginning pages of the book of Genesis, we have a promise that the living God who's really there is going to send his great deliverer into the world. And down through the centuries, contrary to what we're often taught, it's not like God left his message totally uncommunicated, nobody knew anything about it. Down through the centuries, in real history, people have been aware of this promise. Whether it's the wise man when Jesus was born, coming from, from Daniel's territory in Babylon, and coming over to see this one that was promised by the living God. Whether it was the Ethiopian eunuch coming up in the early days of the church from Egypt, hungering for God. Whether it was Melchizedek, way back in the Old Testament. I want you to know as a group of believers that the real truth is that God hasn't left himself without a witness on planet earth. But there's a spirit of Antichrist that opposes this idea that there's an ultimate living God who gave the promise of this great deliverer 
that would come to the world and would deal with man's sin problem. So the spirit of Antichrist will have no regard for traditional religion, no regard for the promise of the Messiah, nor will he regard any God, but he will exalt himself above them all. The ultimate spirit of Antichrist is not a belief in a false God, it is the deification of man. This spirit of Antichrist believes that man is the measure of all things. And one of the ways I want you to understand, and I started out with Stephen Jay Gould at Harvard to kind of communicate that idea that man is the measure of all things. And that statement that I read to you is, a, is, is really an expression of the idea that science has objectively looked at all the evidence and science has carefully looked at geology. They've carefully looked at the, at the development of human beings. They've carefully examined all the facts. And it is a, it is a hands-down case that if you want to really be wise, if you want to really be intellectual, when you go to university as an 18-year-old, like when Daniel leaves here and goes down to, uh, to Southwestern in Georgetown, it'll be an atmosphere in the campus that if you really want to be intellectual, if you really want to be with it, then you're going to jettison this naive belief, this naive belief that God created Adam and Eve and that God created us and that, and that we're living in a world where there's a living God who has spoken to us and, and when he's spoken to us in this book. That will be assumed to be a very naive, childish, Sunday school kind of an idea. And what's really with it, what's really sharp and what's really intellectual is to follow the kind of statements that... Stephen Jay Gould is making. And the very first thing I want to warn you about as we counter the spirit of Antichrist is the false veneer of what we call a scientific objectivism. The idea is that science, science is very objective. Science looks at all the facts. And I want you to understand something, that science that was built out of the Christian culture a Christian culture where men like Isaac Newton believed that nature wasn't God. It wasn't God's, but nature was part of the creation of God. And Isaac Newton read the book of Genesis and believed it. And therefore, he believed what God said, that man needed to exercise rule over nature, that nature was distinct from the creator. So it was all right to enter in and try to figure out and to study what was happening in the physical universe. You see, you probably won't be told in the university that it was really biblical presuppositions and biblical faith that gave rise to science in the modern sense in the Western world and not in India and not in China. Because in India and China, who would ever believe that you had the right as a little tiny human being to enter into the realm of the gods or even enter into the gods themselves that are revealed through all these magical forces of nature? Science didn't develop in India. Science didn't develop in China. It didn't develop under Eastern mysticism. It developed under those that were committed to the belief in this book that separated God the creator from his creation and said that you and I were made in the image of God. And part of that image of God was he's given us the ability to think. He's given us the ability to observe and to make deductions about things and to synthesize things and to try to understand things. And all that is built on what the Bible says about who we are as people. You'll never hear that, or hardly ever, in a, in a secular university. Instead, you'll hear science is really the measure. And science has objectively done away with the naive belief in the Bible. And what I want every one of you to understand as you're exposed to that kind of thinking is that if you're truly scientific, 
If you're truly scientific, then you'll never make a statement like that. A scientist would say, based upon the best evaluation of the evidence right now, we could make some guesses that maybe we came from a meteor out there, that maybe the complex organisms developed from simple organisms, but we really don't know because all the facts are not in yet. Stephen Jay Gould did not talk to you in that quote as a scientist. He talked to you just like I talked to you, as a person that's involved in faith. And what he's telling when he says that this might cause you to tremble, this might cause you to fear, but it will in the end be exhilarating and liberating, he's not speaking as a scientist. A scientist could never tell you whether some fact will produce exhilaration or liberation. Those aren't ideas of science. Science reports what you can observe with your senses, what you can reproduce in a laboratory, and none of what Stephen Jay Gould says in that quote can, can stand that kind of a test. He wasn't there when the mediator shot, and the meteor shot through the sky. He wasn't there when the supposed cell was born. It's all built upon faith. And yet, it's very easy to be just captured by this idea, this is objective, this is really with it. It's one of the very first dangers that I want to warn you of as, as you are exposed to the spirit of Antichrist, is have a healthy, healthy commitment to asking the question, what are the facts behind this? What are really the objective facts that they're building all of this on? We did a whole tape on the Bible and evolution. I told you about Darwin on Trial, a great book that was written by a, a Berkeley law professor. And Philip Johnson just stood against the, the whole theory of evolution. And he traveled around the university the last few years speaking and attacking evolution. Stephen Jay Gould, interesting enough, got viciously angry at him. I mean, just furious with him. How dare he attack his theory? How dare he attack evolution? Well, a true scientist would rejoice in attack. That's the whole thing I was taught in chemistry. Man, everything's up for grabs. You can critique, you can attack, because that's what we're after, to be objective, to make sure it can stand the test of criticism. But when you attack evolution, like you kids will even find it in high school sometimes, as you're exposed to the secular ideas, you bring up any questions, and man, how could you ever dare attack the big modern viewpoint of, of how we got here? And one of the things I want you to realize as I grow older, I've decided that Jesus is a man of truth. And Jesus is the one that told me that he believes there was an Adam and Eve, and I believe that. And I believe that when all the facts are in, when all the true facts of science are in, when we really know all about geology and all about paleontology and all about the origins of human life, you know what we're going to find out? That God's truth in nature is going to totally line up with his truth in revelation of the Scripture. And you need to decide, the young person, as an adult, whether you're going to make that commitment. And what I want to introduce you to is you need to see through the subtlety of the spirit of Antichrist that can suck you out. You say, well, Dave, you're speaking very theoretically today, but you know a student goes away to university and they believe in the Bible? But as they're at university, suddenly a guy like Stephen Jay Gould calls into question the whole issue of origins, begins to tell them that they're just here by accident, that they're just here by chance. You know what the very next thing that begins to happen, and I see this happen again and again, a student begins to not read his Bible. He begins to not fellowship. He begins to say, or she begins to say, well, maybe what God said about moral standards isn't exactly right. Maybe, maybe there really is tremendous exhilaration and tremendous power in, in following this other way. 
And so they do things sexually that they shouldn't do. They even begin to slough off even in their studies sometimes. You see, it's a slippery slope that has incredibly powerful implications. On the other hand, there's another student that goes away and there's another adult that really is committed to what Jesus says and believes the truth of God's word. And all through their college career and the early days of their business life, they really stay committed to Jesus. And I want you to know that you can study the different outgrowths, the different results of those ways of life. The person that follows the Antichrist spirit. There is no ultimate being in the universe. There is no God of revelation. Sinai never really happened. Adam and Eve never happened. That kind of thinking leads to certain kinds of lifestyle. And a person that is, on the other hand, believing in the, in the risen Christ, committed to him, they have another lifestyle. So the very first thing I want to warn you is against the lie of the supposed objectivity of present modern thinking, especially in the area of science about origins, about the origin of how we got here. The second thing I want to warn you, I believe that's pulling people into the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit that Daniel exposed as there's no God but us, is an idea that goes like this. As you go away to university and as you're into the marketplace of life, how many of you have ever had someone say to you, if there really is a God in heaven, if there really is a God that sent his son, if there really is a God that gave the scripture, then why is it then why is it that in the name of Christianity, the Spanish Inquisition took place? And so in your, in your history of the Western world classes, you'll study about the terrible, terrible religious organization that actually burned people and took a man like Galileo, who was a scientist, and made him burn all of his writings and recant all of his writings and, and say his writings were a lie, even though he knew they were true mathematically, and they really exposed what the universe, what was really happening. They made Galileo recant of that. And what it will come across to you is that Christianity, especially Christianity, has caused tremendous oppression, and it has murdered people. And you look at all the religious wars between England and France, it's all over religion. And they'll bring it right up into the modern world and talk about the religious wars of Bosnia. And they'll say, how in the world can the Bible be true when it's led to all this violence? That's a very powerful argument. Very powerful argument. How are you going to stand against that? You know, one of the things you need to ask yourself what gives them the power to say that even all that violence was wrong? As you read the Bible, as you focus on Jesus Christ, how do you think Jesus Christ would feel about an inquisition when somebody was brought before a tribunal of religious judges and that individual was made to submit to the authority of those religious judges totally against their personal decision? You tell me, based upon your reading of the Bible, what Jesus Christ, the living Christ that you study about in the Bible, what would Jesus say about that kind of oppression and power struggle? How many of you think that Jesus would be in favor of forcing people to do that? How many believe that Jesus would stand strongly against it? Jesus himself, in the last week, he did it at the beginning of his ministry, he did it at the end of his ministry, Jesus went into the temple structure where the religious leaders had, by oppression and by stealing and by living from materialism, they had turned the temple of God into a place that people hated to go to because they were cheated and they were treated unfairly. And, and instead of being able to offer their sacrifices and joy, they felt like they'd been rooked. And Jesus threw all that out. And so the biblical, historical Jesus that's revealed in the New Testament stands against that kind of religious oppression. So the difference, it's true, in the name of Jesus, tremendous atrocities have taken place. 
But always, when the atrocities are done in the name of Jesus, we know from reading the scripture that the attack against the very atrocities comes by going back to what Jesus really taught, to what Jesus really believed. And that's the difference. You see, in the name of Jesus, terrible things can be done, but it's always done inconsistent with what Jesus really believed, what Jesus really taught us. I'm going to say that again. Atrocities can be done in the name of Jesus. But whenever they're done in the name of Jesus, they're always done inconsistently with the truth, with the belief system that Jesus has given to us. And as we look at history and we look back on that, there were other men and women of God that stood up and said, this is wrong. How did they know it was wrong? It's because they got back to the book. They got back to the living Christ. Now let me give you another example that you'll probably never talk about in university. Back several years ago, maybe 40 years ago, 50 years ago, if you went to a university, there would be many professors that would teach you that what was happening in the Soviet Union, that was happening in the development of communism was a very good thing. At the turn of this century, when communism grabbed the hold of the USSR and united the Soviet Union that became our enemy, a lot of you might not realize it, but university students throughout the land University professors throughout the land taught students that was the, a great thing. It was a good thing. The Soviet Union in the early stages of its development was hailed by many university professors as the avant-garde coming thing, the thing to be honored. And they were blind to the reports that were coming back, to the reports that were coming back, that there was massive butchery, that there was massive destruction. You say, well, Dave, why was there so much destruction? This, this tremendous vision of the united people, this tremendous vision of, of, of people that would all be the same, by the way, which borrows very much from the Bible. But what communism taught was that you as an individual are nothing. You as an individual are just a bag of chemicals. This, you are here for 65 or 70 years. The state can be here for a 100 years or maybe 200 years or maybe longer in the case of the Roman Empire. So what is important, what is important is not you as an individual. What is important is the government. So in communism, they taught, based upon the theories of evolution, which Karl Marx firmly believed and was firmly taught in at, at German universities, Karl Marx taught that life is just a flow of economics. It's just material forces of economics. And the individual isn't important. The state needs to be used to engineer, to engineer these tremendous changes. In other words, what I want you to know is that the theory of communism led to what communism produced in Russia. And the terrible butchery that flowed from that could be justified based upon the ideas that were presented. It was okay to destroy those who opposed it because the greater good would be to bring in this great revolution of equality, this great utopia. And, 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 and the leaders of communism like Lenin and Engels and Marx taught that violence was okay. Now, I want you to see that that's a tremendous difference. True, in the name of religion, the name of the Bible, there's been terrible butchery. But what about in the name of anti-God? What about in the name of anti-Christos? What about the spirit of Antichrist? What has that generated in our century? Stalin murdered over 8 million people. That makes the Spanish Inquisition look like a little drop in the bucket compared to the millions. A whole generation of people was destroyed by the bloodbath of Stalinism. Take another example that I've often used with you. 
A man named Nietzsche is a German philosopher. Nietzsche is probably the most eloquent teacher of anti-theos, anti-God. There is no God. Nietzsche taught that he was God. And a man named Hitler was a young man when Nietzsche died of madness. His books were in a library, and a young man named Hitler went constantly to Nietzsche's sister and read the writings of this German philosopher. The only thing he did is that Nietzsche did all those ideas sitting in a little room, huddled with a blanket over him because he was burning with syphilis and venereal disease that was destroying his life. All of his loves had been destroyed. And all of his thinking was done just in his head and in his writings. But Hitler took those ideas and made them live in a culture. You know the results of that. And what I want you to know is that atheism, the atheism that Nietzsche presented didn't critique what Hitler did. It laid the groundwork intellectually and philosophically for creating the Third Reich and the great utopia that this next Reich, this next kingdom would bring. So when you go away to university and when you're exposed to that antichrist way of thinking that Jesus Christ couldn't possibly be the truth and Christianity that you were raised with couldn't possibly be the truth because of all the horrible things that have been done in the name of the church, I want you to remember that the same argument in a more powerful way can be used against those that reject the Bible and reject God and build their life on atheism. Only the difference is Jesus is the one that calls humanity back. He calls all of us back from the abyss. He calls us into the understanding of who people really are. But secularism and atheism presents no barriers. You just cave in and go all the way. The third area I want to really warn you about is the false claim to liberation. Antichrist, one of the really attractive things, and, this, and I'm using university students because a lot of our young people will be going away in just a few weeks, and it really grips my heart. One of the most powerful things that, that happens when you're exposed to this kind of thinking is you can say, I can get free of all these moral restraints. How many of you this past week have felt pricks from your conscience? How many of you have had your conscience bother you a little bit this week? How many of you ever feel that there's a struggle going on in your personality between what is right and what is wrong? Doesn't that, how many of you have ever been troubled by that? How many of you have ever felt like there's a good person inside of me and there's a bad person inside of me? And man, it, there's a tremendous, man, it's, it's almost like a life and death struggle. And it, and it just makes me depressed and it makes me tired and it makes me feel defeated. Anybody ever identify with those feelings? Well, suppose I told you that there isn't any bad. That your feelings, like when, when you have feelings of, of wanting to be really aggressive towards somebody and popping them right in the nose, that's not a bad feeling. That's a great self-assertion. Man, that's a good thing to do. In fact, man, the, 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 this life is based upon the survival of the fittest. And so if you lift weights and you can hit harder than somebody else, it's okay. Some of you guys and girls are wrestling with sexual temptation. Suppose I tell you, listen, all those repressive rules, your parents have been telling you, you need to save your body until you find the one that God has for you. You need to go through a whole engagement period when you don't have sexual intercourse. You need to wait all the way till you make marriage vows. And then you need to, in your young married relationship, learn the great joys of, of what it really means to have sex. 
Wouldn't it be much better to liberate you and say, listen, your kids, your young people, the hormones are surging through your body. Man, it's liberating. What you need to learn to do is to learn about sexuality. You need to learn how to use condoms, and you need to learn to experiment. After all, look at the animal kingdom. They don't have scruples, and they don't have to wait for wedding ceremonies. They just let everything rip and just let everything just develop and, and happen. Isn't that liberating? Isn't that exciting? Doesn't that mean that we won't have to struggle with the good and the evil within us? That's not liberating, friend. I want you to clearly understand it. Because right now you sit there, and I'm, and I'm almost being sarcastic with you, and you all sit there piously saying, man, who would ever believe that? But you know, it's a heady trip to be at the university and have brilliant intellectual PhDs telling you, thou shalt not commit adultery, stupid old-fashioned idea. When Jonathan and Joel went to UT, when Mary and I went there for parents' orientation, they had a whole section on the health center because university kids at UT are automatically going to be immoral. So they had all kinds of lectures on how you could go to the health center to get the cure for syphilis, to get the cure for gonorrhea, to not get a cure for AIDS, but they would give you the right kind of prophylactic so you would kind of lower that probability. That's the way they taught the kids. It was all assumed. It's going to be free. It's going to be liberating. I want to ask you a question. Use your head. Do you think that's really liberating? Is that really free? What I want you to do is I want you to think clearly. Jesus Christ does say that there's right and there's wrong. Half your high school can think those ideas are nutty. That doesn't mean that they're not true. And what I want you to realize is that the decisions that you make about freedom and where you can really find it And whether or not you choose to side with Jesus Christ or whether or not you choose to side with the spirit of Antichrist, it's going to ultimately manifest itself in a world. It's going to make tremendous differences in your life. I close with this illustration. Madden Mary O'Hare is probably the most powerful atheist that has has our country's encountered in the last few years. When my dad was early in in the middle part of his career, my dad had one debate after another with Madeline Murray O'Hare. Like, for example, in CBS of Chicago, they did a nationwide radio broadcast where Madeline Murray O'Hare debated with my dad. Madeline Murray O'Hare taught our culture. There is no God. This is the answer. It's wrong to have the Bible in the school. It's wrong to have prayer. It's wrong to believe in God. We need to really be free. That's what she taught. She debated my dad. She was a brilliant debater. My dad debated her probably for two hours. And to be honest with you, the debate went back and forth. Who knows who won? Because the arguments flowed back and forth. But then they opened it up for telephone calls. I'll never forget, there was was a teenage senior girl that called up Madeline Murray O'Hare. And she started out her talk saying, Do I understand you, Madeline Murray O'Hare, that if I become an atheist, if I drink the spirit of Antichrist, that I won't have to have any moral restraints in my life, that I can do anything I want to sexually, that I can do with my body what I want to do, that I don't have to be under repressive authority structures that are holding my human nature down, that I can just let my human nature just express itself and do its thing. This young teenage girl just set Madeline Murray O'Hare up. She said, you're exactly right, young lady. You have understood exactly, exactly what I've taught you. And she said, Madeline Murray O'Hare, I want to tell you something. Two and a half years ago, I believed exactly that. I believed there was no God. I believed there was no Christ. I believed the Bible was a bunch of fairy tales. I believed it was a bunch of lies. She said, as I moved up into my high school career, I rejected what my parents tried to teach me. 
In fact, I just led, in fact, I, I created a whole gang of women in my high school that were committed to the same values that we did. We went out at parties and got totally plastered, drunk, and we would have sex with anybody that happened to be available, and we were really free. She said we moved into harder stuff. We didn't just use alcohol. We also took drugs and started experimenting with that. And, man, we had no restraints upon us at all because we believed there was no ultimate God. Life was just what was happening right now. There was no ultimate day of reckoning. We were free. We were liberated. She said, I want you to know that my life at that time in America here was filled with doubt, was filled with fear. When I put my head on my pillow at night, I couldn't go to sleep, and I had to take drugs just to try to feel kind of some kind of rest and some kind of, of, of meaning in my life. She said, I want you to know that the man that you've been debating in this debate, one night, two and a half years ago, was a teenage girl that was totally an atheist. I turned on the radio, and I heard that man preaching, and he told me an incredible story that there really was a personal God there was a daddy in heaven that really cared about me. He was a daddy that created me in his image, but I'd ruined it, and I'd fallen into rebelling against him. But unlike so many earthly daddies, this daddy had a love that kept on coming. And he didn't even turn away from prodigal kids. He still had a heart that wanted them to come back home. In fact, he wanted them to come home so badly that he sent his one and only son his one object of love, who had never turned away from him, he sent his son to planet Earth. And that evangelist told me that that son lived this perfect life here on planet Earth, but at the culmination of his career, that son gave his life on the cross of Calvary so that I could be delivered from my sin, so that my guilt could be taken away. Because, Madeline Murrow here, you might have thought you've liberated me, but, man, all that belief in doing the wrong thing, when I got on my bed at night and was all alone, the horrible reality of guilt, that something was wrong and that I had done wrong and that I had done evil, I couldn't get rid of that. And then I heard that Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary paid the penalty for me and washed my sins whiter than snow. And that advantage went on to say, that anyone that would believe in him could have eternal life. They would not perish. And she said, two and a half years ago, listening to Jack words on the radio, I invited Jesus to be my Savior. She said, Madam Murray O'Hare, I want you to know that I'm just getting ready to graduate this spring. It took me two and a half years to climb from an F average to get on the honor roll, but I'm now getting ready to go to college because Jesus Christ gave me a reason to study and to use my brain for his glory. I turned away from all the immorality, and I asked you just to forgive me. And now the Lord's providing healthy relationships with the opposite sex, and I don't feel that I need to exploit them. And, and I'm with a group of kids that don't feel they need to exploit me. She said, in fact, my life is totally turned around. I want you to know when I put my head on my pillow at night now, I can sleep and I can have rest. Because ultimately I know that if I die before I wake, I don't have to just pray the Lord my soul to keep. I know that Jesus will keep my soul and I'll be safe with him. And then she said this. She said, Madam Mary O'Hare, I'll take the bondage to Jesus Christ any day over the liberation of atheistic thinking. And then she was done. One of the things I want us to understand is that our belief in God, our belief in the biblical God, our belief in the biblical Christ is not just one of a big smorgasbord of religion. That's what I want you to get a hold of. 
It's not going to work, this idea that, there's, that religion's just a good thing, pluralism is a good thing, there really isn't anything such called truth, there's anything called error, everything can be all put on the table, it's all the same. No, it isn't. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is really there, that atheism, atheos, a life without God is going to destroy you, a life without Christ is going to destroy you, and I want us to grow in our commitment to the living Christ. I want you to think through during this coming week, if you're an atheist, what about the love? Where is the love? If you're an atheist, where is the right and wrong? If you're an atheist, if you're an atheist, where is the wonder? Where is the wonder? If you're an atheist, where is the real meaning in my life? Where is the hope? Can you imagine? I want you to think about this during the week. Imagine me doing a funeral. Let's suppose I said at the funeral for your precious dad, I said, I want you to know that your dad just a bag of chemicals that he's just gone, that he was here just because of chance and probabilities. The moment his heart stopped beating, that was the end. And now he's entered dust, and that's all there is. How many of you ever heard a funeral like that? How many of you would think a funeral like that would really go over? You see, there's hardly any atheists in a funeral parlor. There's no comfort then in that. There's just terror in that. There's tremendous hopelessness in that. But what do you have today? I was able to say, here was a precious dad that was a minister of the gospel for all of his life. This auditorium was filled with people that came to know Christ because of this pastor that told the truth. They wept great tears because of what his life had meant to them. But as they sat here and as this family sang in a quartet and as this family was gathered together, they were able to say, dad is not here. Dad, the real dad, his person that was given to him as a gift from God, is now safe in the bosom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going back, going back to see him. Do you understand the difference between those spirits of Antichrist and the spirit of Christ? The difference there is as wide and as big as eternity. My goal in helping us to counter the spirit of Antichrist is I want to give us great confidence. I think so many times believers feel like, man, we don't have any good reasons for why we believe what we believe, and, and, and boy, I just kind of have to take this, this mysterious leap into the dark, and I just hope it's true. And I want you to understand that there's really good, solid reasons, strong intellectual reasons and, and, and life reasons, experiential reasons for why we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want us to go out into this week and instead of fueling the spirit of Antichrist, I want us to stand for the spirit of Christ. And when we're exposed to a spirit of pride and atheism and anti-Jesus, I want us to counter that, not by being angry and not by cutting down those that teach that, but I want us to counter it by the incredible truth of our own commitment to Jesus. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.